All right, well, I trust you got a worksheet as we get into week number four, I believe it is. I haven't shared this yet, but I guess I'll do it now. There are a number of good books out there about angels and demons, and one of them was written by uh, Ron Rhodes. You know Ron Rhodes? Well, I've asked him to come the two weeks before, which is two weeks from now, I think it is, two weeks before uh, Fall Fest. The week of Fall Fest, we are not meeting, but the week before that, uh, I've asked Ron, uh, his book covers it well, the section on the fall of Satan. So he's going to come and lecture on that, and uh, he's going to do that for us right here, same time, same place, and you can uh, get Ron for an hour and a half. And if you don't know who he is, uh, you'll know him by the end of the month, Lord willing, even if the rapture takes place first might have an opportunity to get to know him before the end of the month, although probably not. We'll be busy, I'm sure. Well, let's pray, and then let's dive right into this perennial question. How many angels are there? Let's pray. God, thanks so much for the opportunity we have to study your word, to look at this very important aspect of reality, this reality that we'll get to see with a new kind of perception when we cross from the threshold of this life into the next, and we appreciate the uh, just the... Um, wealth of information that we have. It's not all, it's not exhaustive, it's not all that we may be curious about, but it does give us a great head start on getting a handle on who these beings are and our relationship to them. Thanks again, God, as I said last week, just for the first half of this semester where we can focus on elect angels, holy angels as they're called. That's a great uh, uplifting and encouraging set of, uh, of seminars, of lectures, and it's good for us to do that. Uh, prepare our hearts as we take a look at the um, at the evil side uh, in the weeks to come. Get us uh, ready, prepared, and uh, let us stand firm as we think through that on a level that I'm sure is not desirable for our spiritual foes to explore, to understand them and their schemes and how they operate. So uh, guard us as a group and get us ready to uh, dive into that. In the meantime, God, tonight we want to explore a little bit further the activities of uh, holy angels, the um, way in which they're classified and ranked, and uh, God, even how we have seemingly through the church been uh, obsessed with trying to figure out what the, uh, what the number of these angels are. So give us some insight tonight. Thanks for your word that gives us a, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It gives us insight that we wouldn't otherwise have the very definition of revelation, special revelation. So thank you so much for the opportunity to dive into it again tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we've been in the series long enough now to be able to, with Scripture in front of us, I trust, dispel uh, some of the myths. But I thought I would just try and do that in a little more graphic way. Here's a classic Renaissance painting of uh, angels around Mary and Jesus who looks like an angel himself here. Uh, all kinds of fat, well-fed, naked baby boys, it looks like. Time Magazine ran an article that said, for those who choke too easily on God and His rules, and come on, who doesn't, right? I mean, so terrible, that God and all His rules. Uh, angels, see, they're the handy compromise. All the fluff and meringue, kind, and I love this, Obviously, I haven't read the book of Revelation. Non-judgmental. <laughs> Time magazine on their 
special on angels. And just kind of that fat, uh, little naked kid with wings picture uh, is so, um, so prevalent. As a matter of fact, that's what they see. Of, I mean, it's become in our language to say a cherub or cherub-like is to, you know, be this kind of uh, uh, fat, glowing child. And you'll go around Christmas time and you'll see Christmas cards like this, of course, which is just, the, you know, the G-rated version of the, the, the naked brand on the former Renaissance painting. But um, I thought to myself, you've learned enough to know that when we see behind the veil and we have these pictures of angels, take, for instance, the Ezekiel passage, they don't look like this. So I've designed some uh, uh, Christmas bulbs, and, and to replace these, you won't see these in our bookstore, but uh, we're going to start carrying these right here. Uh, this is the four-faced cherub, the cherubim of Ezekiel 1 and 10. But then I thought, well, you know, that's really not fair, uh, pulling up another Christmas card here. This is, you know, of course, bird, la bird landing on the finger of this, in this case, a female uh, winged cherub uh, holiday, beautiful holiday card. I thought, you know, that's not really fair because uh, I said there's two views we have of angels. Angels in, in the heavenly vision, when we see them in a vision or a dream or some kind of, 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 of behind-the-veil look at them, they're these bizarre creatures uh, you know, burning ones and, and, and six-winged figures and multiple faces and eyes all over. But uh, when we see them in reality, what did I say? We looked at several examples. They just look like normal people. So this is our angel card that we're going to have in uh, the bookstore at Christmas. Just kind of a <laughs> normal guy. Because if you, you, know, you want to see what angels look like in the Bible, they, they don't even know half the time they're talking to an angel unless they appear out of thin air. So I thought this might work if you don't like that. Or we could go back to the Ezekiel uh, four-headed creature. Here's another rendition of uh, the four-headed man, eagle, ox, lion. This guy's been on the ab rocket or something working out, but... Uh, it's another rendition, but it doesn't really, you know, doesn't fit the picture here. So if you have these around your home, if you invite me over to your house around Christmas time, uh, you want to replace them with something like this if you want me to be impressed, uh, or this would be fine too, <laughs> just to let me know that you've been listening in angelology, but get rid of all of these images in your mind because they're not, they're not accurate. Uh, all right, so when you think of it, we're going to talk about the number of angels. Don't picture, you know, don't picture these, uh, these things. Let's get back to the crowded, you know, how many are in the nursery of heaven, you know, floating around uh, the throne of God. That's, that's not how it works. Uh, we're looking at creatures, if we were to see them in the way that God would present them in His presence, uh, that would look quite different than what we're uh, picturing at Christmas time. So uh, let's try and answer the question, first of all, by thinking through just a little bit of the speculations. You say, why would we spend any time on speculation? Because the speculation are based on passages of Scripture. Uh, one of them has to do uh, with them, them being equal to the stars, and that is because of the label that was given to them. And we've seen this in a few places already in our series, and I even think we looked at Revelation 10.4, but that may be worth looking at again just to see that this is their nickname. Uh, you know, the, the angels uh, of, of heaven 
are, are called the stars of heaven. Revelation 12, 3 and 4, saw another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon, seven heads, ten horns, uh, and on his head ten diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. Well, if that's how they're seen, uh, not only there, Job 38, we talk about the morning stars sang together, uh, then some people have said, well, then it has to do with the, uh, you know, there's a correspondence to the number of angels. You may say, well, that, you know, that's kind of a leap. It's a leap that a lot of people have taken through church history. Uh, the problem with that is you need to ask the question, is this visible or actual stars? Uh, because, you know, that, that's a large disparity. And the more we have increased in our technology, of course, the number of stars continues to, at least by guesstimation and estimation, increase, 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 uh, at least by observation when we build our, our Hubble telescopes. Uh, so in my mind, you know, I, I think you've got to say this is um, it's not a great speculation. Yes, that is their nickname, the stars of heaven. And we talked about some of the reasons they might be called that. But let's not try and build their number based on that. Visible stars, what do they say? And in the best circumstances, if you could count them as around 6,000 that are of the magnitude that you can see with the naked eye, of course, they think there's, you know, a septillion uh, if you um, want to you know, read the astronomical textbooks of today. So let's just get rid of that idea because that's probably not helpful. Other people have said, and this is recent as uh, Peter Kreft, if you read some of his apologetic stuff, which Protestants do, but he's a Catholic. Uh, I mean, he holds to this view uh, that, that, that there is angels uh, based on the number of people. And that's because of Matthew chapter 18, verse 10. Uh, and maybe, not maybe, we should look at this one together because this one is often quoted. I've had questions after um, our Compass Nights about this, but let's try and get this one out of the way right now if we can. Matthew chapter 18, verse 10. A couple things going on in this text. The primary thing that's going on is an illustration about faith and repentance. We'll look at that in a minute, but let's look at the proof text that is used when people say, uh, even Charles Ryrie in his book on, on theology at least interfaces with this theory. Matthew 18.10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Okay? Uh, I tell you that in heaven the angels always see the face of my Father. So their angels, that possessive form of this Greek grammar is, wow, uh, little ones have angels. And this has given rise, the one verse that's given rise to the belief in guardian angels, right? That people have angels. And so, uh, at least in Ryrie's book, as he interfaces with this, he talks about, well, then the number, if you're going to go with this, has to be the number uh, of uh, people that have ever lived, because that's the question you have to ask. Are we talking about people that have ever lived or people that are living? I mean, when the person dies, are they done or they, you know, continue on with that person? And some people have said, well, if everybody's got an angel, well, then there's as many angels as there's ever been people. And that's, uh, that's a lot of angels. And they, some have settled on that. Kreft actually believes that it's the number of people uh, that are alive at any given time. So he'll say, well, there's at least then, uh, what is he, five billion people, um, or five billion angels. Um, the problem with that is the context. Look at the context of this. He's dealing with something that has nothing to do with children and their angels. Um, 
Let's look at verse 3. Truly I say, unless you turn, there's the picture of repentance, and become like children, there's the picture of faith, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The connection here is that the little one is an example of the one who trusts in God, who is repentant and has faith. So this text, if we were to really follow it and be faithful to the context, is about Christians. Then you could say, well, then in the text, we're dealing with Christians that have angels. Then you'd have to ask the same question. If you're going to build the number of angels based on that, is that all the Christians that have ever lived? Or is that just, you know, the Christians at any given time, the maximum number? Which again, this is not a, this is not a text trying to help us understand how many angels there are. And this will still leave the question, well, then, you know, what about the guardian angel concept? Well, it, it, their angels, all we know here is that there's a relay between heaven and the people that God loves, the, the people that angels serve, which we looked at in Hebrews chapter 1, the last verse of that chapter. They are sent to give aid and to minister to those who will inherit salvation. So we know that there is an interface. Uh, the possessive here, to build on that one possessive uh, form of that word to say, well, that means that we have one and, you know, mine's guy's Charlie and he follows me around or whatever. Uh, not, um, certainly y- you can't make a stringent case for that here in this text, although I can't dismiss it either. Uh, but it is not about children as is often quoted, every little child has an angel, not what our text is teaching. In this theory, which of course you catch the idea that I don't buy it, uh, they would say the angels are on standby because the angels don't propagate. They're all ben Elohim. They're all sons of God. There's one generation from God to the creation of angels. They don't uh, have babies. So we have a static number of angels and we have a static number of demons. Uh, a third of them we guesstimate from the apocalyptic text that I just read that we have you know, a static number. There's no crossing over. There's elect and evil. They're in their two camps and there's a static number. But again, you know, I, I'm presenting these theories, but of course, um, I, I, don't, I don't think either of these passages give us any cause to try and calculate the number of angels. Well, let's talk about scriptural references that do talk about numbers, because what I'm saying is neither of those do. That's not the point uh, of, of those passages. So let's look at some scriptural references that do deal with numbers. Let's turn to each of these. There are four of them. And let's look at the first one, Matthew 26, 53. Some people will go to this text to try and give a number for the angels, and it certainly does number angels, but it is not giving us any kind of lecture on angelic beings or trying to give us a limit on angels. But let's look at what Jesus said nevertheless. Jesus says in verse 52, just for some context, put your sword back in its place, talking to Peter here. They're in the garden. They've come to arrest him. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? Uh, but how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that, I, that it must be so? So 12 legions, uh, more than 12 legions. A legion in the time of Christ was 6,000 men and in some historical documents every one of those had auxiliary troops with them, at least one corresponding for all the fighting men. That's 12,000, or if you just go with the basic number in a legion in the first century, 6,000. That's anywhere between 72,000 or 144,000, which is a handy number in the Bible. And some people have said, well, then that's what we've got. We've got 144,000 angelic beings. Uh, Well, we can't have that even in the verse because it says 
the Father could send more than that. And since we're not creating them out of, you know, out of, of thin air, so to speak, uh, they're not being created, there's got to be more than 144,000 with the liberal estimation of what a first century legion is. Jude 14. Jude, little book of Jude, right before Revelation, verse number 14. Now, this gets into trying to understand a word that we have in Greek that unfortunately has made its way into English as a imprecise word. And I think probably for good reason, because the Greek use of the word is um, really not trying to give a specificity per se, although it has a root in a number. So let's look at that with all of that preface to give you time to get there. Verse 14. It was also about these, Jude 14, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. Ten thousands, if you have a Greek New Testament or you're on your Bible software, if you click on ten thousands, it's the word myrios. We get the English word myriad from that. And myrios in its origins has the number attached to it, ten thousand. This is in the plural, ten thousands. It's translated in the ESV here as ten thousands of his holy ones, which you know, is at least two sets of ten thousands. Uh, even at the time of the Bible, though, myriad had become uh, more of a, of a statement to say the maximum number, a myriad. Uh, so there's more than 20,000, I'm assuming, uh, certainly more than that because Jesus said He could send at the very conservative estimate 72,000 from heaven to deliver Him. He certainly didn't need Peter's lackluster skills at fencing to help him. Uh, fight the Roman soldiers. Let's go number three here, Hebrews chapter 12. But at least it's a biblical reference. I know there's got to be more than 20,000. There's got to be more than 72,000. Now, this is not like the ESV to do this. Since that's the uh, translation we're using, it takes the same word here and translates it differently quite a bit. Hebrews 12.22 says, You've come to Mount Zion, 12.22, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Innumerable, if you click on that, or you have your Greek New Testament there, or your interlinear, you'll see that's the same word, myrios. It's also in the plural. It's the same exact phrase as Jude 14. And yet here it's translated innumerable angels. The problem with any translation team, by the way, is you got different guys working on different sections of the New Testament. Uh, and they're going to translate words a little differently. And a word like myrios that's probably so inconsequential in the scope of things was not cross-referenced, uh, I'm assuming, in the whole editorial process. So ESV is usually pretty consistent in its translations. Here it's not. But I do think, as I've just explained, though its classical root means 10,000, when it's used in the plural, certainly when it's used in the plural, it's referring to an innumerable number. But literally, it would mean ten thousands, plural, more than ten thousand, more than two sets of ten thousands. Follow that? All right. Same word, though, and your Bible software will show you that. Number four, this one's even better. Revelation 5, 11. Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. So far, I mean, if you take the English text of Hebrews 12, the largest number we have is innumerable, uncountable, but we know the word... And if we were going to be very stringent about the translation of the word, 
you know, that's less than 72,000, the conservative number, so at least we've got that. But this one kind of pops open the springy snake out of a can. How's that? Boop. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels. Great. I want to know their number. Here we go. Numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Now that's a pretty literal translation because that's exactly what we said we have we have the plural of both of these myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands i mean that's just literally exactly what it says which again if you want to add that up which people have tried to do that that's a really big number depending on how you understand the grammar of myriads of myriads exponential numbers of 10,000 times 10,000? And is it thousands times thousands? And then you jam all that together, and is it... You see what I'm saying? Clearly, this is a idiom, etymological way. It's, a way. it's an idiom in Greek to explain this in John's vision is beyond calculation, which gets us back to the translation of Hebrews 12, which is probably a good way for us to draw a conclusion, which is how many angels are there? Here's my technical answer a lot. <laughs> if you want a more biblical answer from a more responsible pastor, he's going to say, it's not revealed to us in Scripture, but it's a lot. And the biggest reference we have in Scripture is Revelation 5.11. Myriads of myriads, ten thousands of ten thousands, which is probably ten thousands times ten thousands, and thousand, add to that, thousands times thousands. Now that's a description again. Remember, he's having, a, as I like to say, a multimedia presentation. That's what apocalyptic literature is all about. He's recording what he sees, and when he sees all of this, he sees massive amounts, and under the direction of God's Spirit, he writes down myriads upon myriads and thousands of thousands. So I don't know. How many angels are there? There were great theologians of ancient days that have given numbers. My, my explanation sounds stupid, but it's a, there's a lot. Just live with that answer. Okay? All right. Organization. Let's talk about it. A little bit more about rank. We looked at names, I think, on the second week, and we saw how some of the names, we were real quick on that. We were out of time. We were at the end. But we did see some names that helped us with that. Uh, but I want to help you think through if there are myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands, I want to picture that throng picture, I don't know, where do we see the biggest groups uh, in America, at least, maybe on the mall in Washington, D.C., right? Throngs of people for as far as you can see on the grassy mall there between the cracking uh, Washington Monument and, uh, and, and the Capitol, right? Thousands and thousands. Of, and if you saw that and you said, quick, you got to write down what you saw. Wow. I don't know. You know, they always argue about how many people is on the mall depending on, you know, they want to round it down or round it up. But how, how would you describe that? I don't know, it's a lot. Now, picture that mass of people, and let's just say you're the pastor of all those people, or you're the, you know, the boss of all those employees, right? That, that's going to be quite a complicated mass of people. I want to start with some assumptions about what God would do. These are assumptions, I get them, but they're based in Scripture. Assumptions about a God who now has myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands of these beings who are all these, you know, varied individuals. And remember, they have intellect, emotion, and will. They think, they feel, 
They have names. They have individuality. They have made decisions, decisions that, that have, have tossed them into one of two camps. I mean, this is, um, this is a lot. Well, in Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, we're talking now about the fact that no one can say, I know nothing about God, right? And their, their condemnation is certainly without excuse. And he starts here by talking about natural theology. What, what can be known about God is plain to these people. They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, that's what I want to underscore, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they're without excuse. Now, we can learn a lot about God. Can't learn about the cross or Christ or the coming Messiah by looking at natural revelation. But we do learn a little bit about the nature of God. That's what this text means, okay? Now, when I think about God, when He's in charge and he's in charge of perfected beings, okay? Now, he's in charge of us, but we are still fallen. We're still encased in humanity. We're a mess, right? But the angels aren't a mess. So I just want to think, God, the perfect God, if I think about learning from nature how God would deal with a morass of people, right? Morass is not the right word. Myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands. To us, it looks like a, just a morass of people, Okay? Uh, how would he do it? Well, I want to think about nature for a second, and I want to just think through. Now, some people say, well, there's not enough evidence in the Bible to talk about rank and organization, classification, but I want to think, uh, you know, like, I don't know, how God has designed the building of snowflakes, right? Um, it's just pretty complicated and intricate and symmetrical in this case and exacting. Uh, the spiders that invade the bushes in my, around my home, um, even the little brainless spiders that he creates build these amazingly symmetrical, carefully crafted webs. I mean, have you taken a good close look at these webs before they hit your face as you walk through the garage toward your car in the morning? Uh, slow down through the threshold and look at those. Uh, they're, they're amazingly made. Now, if the fallen spider, right, and, and, and the snow that falls on a fallen world, the things that God does have direct charge of, and at least He has given them the design to do what they do. If those things look like that, see, I, I, I start to make some assumptions about God and this huge group of myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands. Now, you watch shows like Hoarders, maybe, if you are, have nothing else to do, I suppose, uh, Hopefully this does not bring any memory to mind in your environs, but, um, you know, when you see that kind of thing, I mean, this is a modern version of Proverbs 24, but you should think of Proverbs 24. God says, I pass by the field of the sluggard. Now, you just know by hearing the word, even if you don't know what the word means, that that's not good. You don't want to be called sluggard, right? But the lazy man, the, the, the slothful man. And I went by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. Now, you know that's not good. You don't want to be called by God a man like that. And behold, what was it like? What was home like? It was overgrown with thorns, and the ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. In other words, God looks at this and says, sin, right? That may motivate you to go clean up your desk when we get home tonight. But, I mean, you know, that whole adage that you've dismissed because it's not in the Bible, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness. Hey, there's something to that. There is something to that, right? Your desk should be organized. 
more organized than it is. You can blame it on your fallen humanity. And this is not a sermon about the neatness of your home or whatever. But there is, you should never be on the hoarders program, right? Unless it's of a relative going, wow, what happened to Sally? She fell apart. You should not be one of the stars of hoarders. Do you even know what I'm talking about? Look it up. Unbelievable, okay? Because that is not how God does things. God looks at stuff like that and he's a sluggard, man lacking sense, right? When God builds you and me, okay? He builds it with these complex strands, these double helix proteins, uh, right? Uh, DNA. And, and if you scientific types know, this is just a masterful organization of data, okay? Now, here's, what I, here's where I started. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. I know this about God. When He builds things and has a direct touch on things, those things are organized and those things have, you know, all kinds of intricacies and symmetry to them. And uh, when sin gets involved, it gets all messed up. So they have a lot of fun at Awana, do they not? Either that or they're in a lot of pain out there. I can't decipher the, the two. But do you see where I'm going with this text? If God is in charge of that mass of people on the mall in D.C., those are His angels. I guarantee you, they you know, each have a place. They each have a role. They each have... I mean, there is, there's organization to this. There's classification to this. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33. Don't need to turn to this one. You know it. The context is about the problem in Corinth when the church services are going crazy. And, and, and you know, he talks about now, if you're going to prophesy you're going to proclaim this truth you get to do it one by one you do it in order uh because everyone's spirit should be subject to themselves for god here's verse 33 is not a god of confusion right so i know that this is not a free-for-all they're not driving you know volkswagen bugs and playing frisbee and 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 uh not the bug the van right sorry i keep going back to that childhood picture of chaos and beatnik hippiedom and uh, all of that. But God is not into that. That's not what the angels' lives are all about. Uh, one more. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Job chapter 1, verse 6, and Job chapter 2, verse 1. Don't need to turn there. You remember these passages. We looked at them earlier in the series. It says, there was a day when the sons of God, the Ben Elohim, that's the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. Chapter 2, verse 1. And there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Here we have God with intervening circumstances between chapter 1 and chapter 2 and stuff that happened in the middle. He's bringing everybody together for what? Not to play Frisbee, right? To have a meeting. And they're there to now present themselves. And God then is having this kind of uh, work meeting around this really big you know, a uh, conference table. That I can at least piece together is not done with chaos because God's not a God of chaos and God is always a God of order and symmetry and care and organization. So I can know that. Those are assumptions based on the character of God, even imagining how the character of God is applied with beings that have to come and give account to God and actually assemble in some way before God on a recurring basis. Titles. Titles help us with this. We've already dealt with this title in week number two, Archangels, the Archangels, okay? Just to make a compound word out of the word angelos 
and to add the word ark or arco in Greek at the beginning of it, we know this. Arco means the one who's in, in, in a chief among the others. Right? So at least I know this. God is a God of order. God is a God of symmetry. God's a God of uh, not a God of confusion. And now I know that some are named in a way that shows that they're over others. Just like on earth, he sets things up that way in the family, he sets things up that way in, in government. God is a, in the church. God is a God of arranging people in what we call hupotasso relationships, in, in, in order under others in terms of authority and accountability. And that is how God operates, apparently, amongst the angels because he's even applying the word chief angel, which we said was more than one, you might remember. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 used it with an indefinite use without the definite article, which was saying that an archangel is going to call out and, and announce the second coming of Christ. Jude 9, of course, is where Michael is called an archangel. Okay? Even this, we, ha we start having words like cherubim and seraphim. We looked at it week two, burning ones, the cherubs. We're not sure the origin of that word. But here are these different angels called different things, and, and they have different labels. And, and that makes us think, okay, there's got to be some ranking to this because I know archangel, chief angel, certainly means there's some ranking to, 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 to the angels. There's got to be with differentiation in words, cherub and seraph, that there are differentiations there in Isaiah 6. And the reason I put Isaiah 37 is because Isaiah 37 mentions the cherubim and Isaiah 6 mentions the seraphim. So there are clearly, even within one book, one author, descriptions of angelic beings with two different labels. And then there are various distinctions, various distinctions. At least jot that little phrase down, and then let's turn over just to do the best detective work we can in a chart, because you like charts on Thursday nights. So I'm going to give you a chart that we can fill in here to show you there's something to this. Now, here's what I'll admit. People make too much of this and try and fill in the gaps, and they have a lot of supposition and, 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 and presume a lot when they look at these words. And I'm not going to build some kind of, you know, military structure and captain and lieutenant and sergeant. I can't do that. But I can say there's something to this. Look at this. As we look through these biblical words, we need to turn to each one of these. Let's start with Colossians 1.16 and go through the chart. And I've got it up here. Hopefully that's going to clearly be seen here. They'll pop up in yellow one at a time. And let's just list them as we go through it. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him, that is Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible. Now, what we do grammatically here is we assume that these next four labels are all some description of the invisible world. Okay? And here they come. The first one, thrones. Okay? Thrones. That's not a description of a place where someone sits, although we think of it as an object of throne. It has to do with the power one exerts when they're in the throne. They have a sense of authority. They have rulership. And then the next one, dominions. Whether they be thrones or dominions, there's more than one set of thrones, if you will, and more than one set of dominions. Then the next one, rulers. And then the last one, authorities. Stay out of the shaded boxes. You're following this. So simple, right? Thrones, dominions, rulers, 
and authorities. Now look across the page at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Speaking now about what Christ did on the cross. In the book already, we've talked about invisible creatures or invisible beings, and we've mentioned four different categories. Look what he does here. He disarmed now the, here are the two words, rulers, and he's disarmed the authorities. He repeats those two words, okay? Ephesians chapter 1, just to get you in the middle of this very long sentence. Verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what the hope to which you've been uh, which he's been called, the riches, the glorious inheritance of the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of the power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 21. Far above all, here we go, look at these three words, four words, jot them down. Let's put rule with rulers, right? Far above all rule, whatever that is, that category of rulers, far above all authorities that's a pair we're going to see almost throughout all of these texts okay and now he adds this one and above all power and then let's put this one on the top because we had that one in colossians 1 16 above all dominion these are all in the singular all seem to be categories so in this text we have rule authority power dominions and we've now doubled up on three of them at least in three different texts same author, of course. Look across the page now, Ephesians 3. Are you tracking with this chart? All right, Ephesians chapter 3, look at verse 10. To get some context, verse 8. Though To me, Paul says, though I'm the least, very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plain what is, what, is the plan, what is the plan, rather, sorry, of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to thee, and he gives us these two again, the rulers, this time in plural, and authorities. You overachievers have filled the whole chart in already, haven't you? Chapter 6, verse 12. Well, you know what the first two are, and you know what the third one is. But let's look at one more he adds here. And he adds a, uh, an adjective to the third one here. What does he say here? Um, don't, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. Now, here comes powers again, but it is given with a qualifier, an adjective, an adjective the cosmic powers, the powers of, of, of the heavens, right? Of, of not, you know, this earthly domain, over this present darkness, okay, so we're not talking about good angels here, against the spiritual, here's our next one, forces of evil. So we've got rulers, authorities, powers, and forces of evil in heavenly places. And again, remember what heavenly places mean. I've said this so many times, and I'm sorry to be redundant, but if you don't make this distinction, you'll have all kinds of Bible questions. It'll be easily answered by letting you know that both in Hebrew and in Greek, the word heaven is used in three different ways. When you see heaven, you've got to think that's good. No, it's not good. It doesn't have to be good. It can res- relate to this, what is translated here, cosmic domain, right? It can relate to the sky where the birds fly, or it can relate to God's living room. Those are distinctions in the use of the word heavens. So what is the evil in the heavenly places? It's not the domain of the, of the normal human earthly reality rulers, authorities, powers, and forces. 
Now, last one, Romans 8, 38. Romans 8, 38. You've already got it filled in. No, you don't, because you're missing a word. Verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life... Now, look what he says, the first word here on the list, angels. Now, I don't know why an angel would want to separate me from the love of God, which is where this goes, unless, of course, we're not talking about good angels, we're talking about evil angels, which is used a lot. Hopefully, you've gotten that. Every time it's a bad angel, it's not called a demon. Sometimes it's called a wicked spirit. Sometimes it's called an evil angel. Sometimes here, like in this text, it's just called an angel, that class of being, in this case, a fallen angel, right? Nor the rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, this time without the adjective. Now, I know these all come from the Apostle Paul, but at least we need to recognize that in the writing of of, of Paul's letters, there is something of a pattern here that makes us think that this was an arbitrary that when we're talking about the invisible realm, we've got some kind of, of hierarchy going here. I think guys make way too much of it in the books that they write, but I'm least on to the fact that, yeah, you got something there. Why? Because I start with natural theology and I say God is a God of order. God is a God of, of, of classification. God is a God of leadership. God is a God of, of submission and hierarchy. God is a God of all kinds of, of symmetry and, and care that He gives to everything. He's going to arrange these beings somehow. And these words relate to their arrangement. How? I don't know. Am I in the dominion class? Is that better than a powers class? I don't know even that that's the words. But you can see there's some kind of classification here that we shouldn't ignore. Don't make too much of it, but at least recognize there's something to the ranking, classification, distinction, and authority that is not equal among angels. That chart, I think is worth having. Let's talk about activities. Now, they're not all doing the same things. You know that just because everybody's got different rankings and classes and assignments. I mean, obviously, but what can we say in general about angels? Number one, we know this. We don't need to turn to this one, but this was the passage where Gabriel comes up and he delivers the message in Luke chapter 1 about the birth of John the Baptist in this case. And the name, Malach, Angelos, we looked at those words on week one. It means messengers. And on very rare occasions, God sends in his redemptive history an angel to declare special revelation, starting with the law, actually before the law, but certainly in the giving of the law in 1445 BC with Moses and Mount Sinai. Angels now are the deliverers of the information from heaven. And throughout various points on his, in the biblical history, we have angels showing up to give messages. We've talked about that, nothing new there. Clearly, though, they're not only messengers. When we see the angels and even the passages we've looked at throughout the series, we see that they're often worshiping. Now, you see a lot of this in the Psalms, but you see a lot in the Psalms because it's a worship book, so you would expect that. But let's go to Revelation and try and pick apart a couple of things that we see about worship, and maybe just a word or two about worship as long as we're on the subject. Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 worship. While you're turning there, let me tell you what worship means, the word worship. Here's a great psalm, and here's basically what the word means. To ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. To ascribe to the Lord. To to credit God. To proclaim to God about God and how glorious and great He is. I mean, that's the essence of, of worship. It can happen as I pray. It can happen as I speak to God uh, in song. It can happen, um, and, and this is for a sermon, but and we can see several places in the Bible where clearly worship is an act of my life. 
presented as, a, as a, an act of worship to God, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. But the whole point of worship is ascribing to God His greatness. Now, these beings do it in a way that is um, a lot different than we're capable of doing, but let's read a little bit in verses 6 through 11 in Revelation 4. And before the throne, great sea of glass, whatever that means, like crystal, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, four living creatures, and we see how weird they are in Ezekiel. They're a little different here, though. Eyes, and we looked at the chart on that. We built a chart on this, did we not? Full of eyes, front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second creature like an ox, the third living creature like the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings. They were full of eyes around and within, and day and night they never cease to say because they don't sleep. They're not biological. They're not human, right? So they're all the time, apparently, in this scene, day and night, always doing what? They're always crying out and saying what we saw in Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That phrase itself is an act of worship. God, you're, you're set apart. You're different. You're unique. You're transcendent. You are God. You're almighty. You're in charge. The Lord is His name, right? At least in Old Testament Hebrew. God is His, is his rank, if you will. The ultimate sovereign one, almighty, speaks to His power. And then we talk about the fact that He's so unique because He's the only one who was and who is and who is to come the always ever existing one, which is what Yahweh means, right? Verse 9, and whatever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever, the 24 elders, whoever they are, fall down, I know there's a lot of theories, fall down before him seated on the throne to worship him who lives forever. So their posture in submission and reverence to God. And they cast their crowns before him saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will, uh, they existed and were created. Now, again, this is problematic if we understand anything about Exodus and the law of God. Uh, but in the next chapter, we see them doing the same thing to the Lamb. Now, remember, we've already seen in Revelation, angels don't want you to worship them. As a matter of fact, they will prohibit that because that's not biblical. You can't worship the created. You've got to worship the Creator. So they refuse worship, we've seen already in the book of Revelation. But here... Look at verse 8 through 13, Rev, Rev 5, 8. When they take in the scroll, the four living creatures, same creatures, and the 24 elders, same leaders there, fell down before the Lamb this time, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So they're almost bringing in some kind of, which is, by the way, liturgical. Liturgical is the word from the, from the Greek word, Liturgos is the word that is used for a kind of service to God that is like a priest. It is used of angels. They're not only ministers in the sense that they are giving service, like the diakonos service, they give the liturgical service, which is some kind of, of intermediary. Oh, they're not Christ. There's only one mediator between God and man. I get that. But here they're bringing to God, it says in this text, symbolically, the prayers that we pray. Verse 9. I know that's weird, but there it is. Verse 9, and they sang a new song, music involved in worship often. Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals. We're speaking to Christ now. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Same hoopla we had for the Father is now being given to the Son. That's big. If you don't believe in the deity of Christ, it's, it's devastating. For you have made them a kingdom, verse 10, of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads 
of myriads and thousands of, of thousands. We already looked at that verse tonight. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I thought God the Father was worthy of that. No, that's true. But here, the angels are saying all of that about the Son, about the Lamb, the Lamb of God, who John said, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And I heard every creature in heaven, which is full of angels, right? And on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Does that not just kind of put to rest any of that doubt about this triune God? This has got to be a triune God, right? I see two persons here being worshipped as the creator being able to be worthy to receive all the worship of heaven and angels we know in the book of Rev are never going never gonna to have that. Worship is what they do. They also deliver messages from time to time. Very unique situations. They also are overseers. Let me use that word, overseers. And I use that word not from the Greek text. If you are a good Sunday school grad, you'll know three words for pastors. Poimen, presbyteros, and episkopos. Uh, we translate the word episkopos often overseer. I'm not getting this from the New Testament. I'm getting the word overseer from the Old Testament. Uh, Daniel 4, verse 13. Here the Hebrew word is translated watchers. And I told you this already, but the extra-biblical writing in the post-exilic period after the, the Babylonian exile and the return to Israel, they love that word for angels. They retell a lot of the stories of the Old Testament. Instead of using the word malak, which is angel, they use the word watchers. Now, a little sidebar on this since we have a little bit of time. Daniel 4, it just, bent and just calls on that. A watcher, a holy one comes down from heaven and he's going to give him this, this vision. He's going to show him the interpretation of what's going on. Watchers. Watchers. Now again, if sometimes people throw flags on the play. A lot of times when I talk about uh, the, the uh, non-physical relation, uh, the non-physical uh, composition of, of angels because the passages like this make it hard. Watchers. Here's the problem with watching us. If you're an angel, you don't have eyeballs. And that should be a problem because they are seeing in a different way than you're seeing. That's why I put next to this. What I mean by that is, and what the Bible must mean by that, is they are perceivers. They perceive, but they don't perceive the way you and I perceive. I perceive with a bunch of electronic pulses going off in my brain because I'm translating photons through some lenses in my eye, and that's how I'm perceiving you. I get to see you that way. They are watchers, but they don't have eyeballs, and therefore they watch differently. Now, they have to be localized. We said that, but they don't watch like we watch. And some of you are going to say, well, wait a minute. You just told me, for instance, that their angels, we saw that in the Matthew passage, see the face of my God, right? They come before God and see His face. This would be worth turning to. Turn to a couple of passages. How about 1 Timothy chapter 6? These are all anthropomorphisms. There's a good word to throw out at a dinner party this week. Anthropomorphisms is not a hard word. Anthropos, man. Morphe, right, means form. Ism means that's what you're doing when you do an anthropomorphism. You're, you're, you're in the process, you're engaging in putting things in the form of mankind. You are representing God in the form of a human but he's not a human. First Timothy chapter 6. Look at verse 13. Let's start there. I charge you in the presence of God. 
who gives life to all things and to Christ Jesus. This is 1 Timothy 6, 13. Are you with me? Who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, by the way, does bounce photons off his skin because he is incarnate, which he will display at the proper time. Who's the he? God. He who is blessed, the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, underline this now, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion forever. You can't see God. See, that's what I'm trying to say. Not the way that you and I perceive. It's impossible. Why? Because he doesn't have photons. He's not, it's not something I can process with the lenses of my, my corneas. I can't do that with my eyes. God is invisible. God is spirit. God is not tactile. God is not corporal. He's not, he's not something you can touch. He dwells in unapproachable light who no one has seen or can see. It's impossible. What's all this seeing of God then? Anthropomorphisms, right? There is some manifestation that God does bring. If you're thinking of Moses in the cleft of the rock or the Shekinah glory, as they call it in, in rabbinic writings, coming and dwelling, the glory settling in the temple before between the wings of the cherubim on the ark of the covenant yeah there are manifestations of god's glory which are somehow visible to human beings but god himself is not something you can touch or you can see so the face of god is an anthropomorphism in matthew when he says the angels see the face of god you can't see the face of god because he doesn't have a face see there right jesus has a face because he is incarnate to quote colossians 1 15 jesus is the image of the invisible god god is invisible jesus is not hebrews 1 3 jesus is the radiance of the glory of god can't see the glory of god but the radiance of his glory is who jesus he's the imprint of his nature jesus is the imprint of god he upholds everything in the universe by the word of his power okay the spirit of course is invisible the father is invisible jesus is visible after the incarnation can Jesus make himself visible before the incarnation? Yes, we think that's what the angel of the Lord is. We spent a whole night on that. But when we talk about the watchers, how are they watching us? Not the way you and I think that they would watch us. They watch us, they perceive us because they don't have eyeballs, but they are localized. They are focalized. They have to have some kind of attention in one place at one time. And there's some interface there that God allows. So much so that when the Bible says that he gives his angels charge concerning you so that you don't strike your foot against the stone, when, when God employs that kind of decree to my life and I'm about to break my toe on the way to preach and somehow, some way, the interaction between heaven and earth keeps me from doing that in a way I'll never see or know, somehow the perception of what the angel is doing and what I'm experiencing, which we're going to talk about next time, their interface with, with us, but there's a perception of the reality because my toe is a physical reality and the bone in my toe is the whole goal is don't let him break his toe do you see that and the post is real so the perception is exacting the perception is precise but the perception is not because photons are streaming into their brain they don't have a brain oh angels don't have a brain that's insulting they don't need a brain god is smarter than angels and he doesn't have a brain oh that sounds blasphemous but you get what i'm saying right no some of you yeah you have to think in that and you're going to go oh bible verse bible verse bible verse the bible verses that are going to talk about god in 
Human terms are what we call anthropomorphisms. They are trying to explain something to us that give us the reality in human terms. But God is not physical and the angels are not physical and the watchers are not watching and perceiving the way you think. Which will get us, when we get to demons, a question we always get is, how do they perceive, do they know our thoughts? We'll get into all that, but you're going to start to recognize, well, if they don't perceive in physical realm, they must perceive in a different realm and We'll get to that, hold that question now that I brought it up, which I shouldn't have brought it up because now you're going to think about it. Um, but we'll, we'll get to that. But they are watchers. So what are they doing? They're perceiving. They perceive what's going on here? Absolutely. There's plenty of them. I know that. Myriad upon myriad, thousands upon thousands. And they care about us, so they're here. They're here tonight. They're not physical, but they're perceiving what's happening in our room tonight. According to Daniel chapter 10, they're protecting several other passages, I suppose I could list here for you. I just quoted Psalm 91, verses 11 through 13. God gives His angels command. God commands His angels concerning you to guard you in your ways, bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Hebrews 1. But anyway, the, and, and the one I'm thinking of in Daniel 10 is there was that battle going on. There was protection, and Michael, of course, was the uh, chief of the prince of, of Israel, of your people. Anyway, we've been through all those passages already. How do they protect? More on that next week. We'll think about the realities that we have to deal with every day and, and try and imagine some of the interface between heaven and earth. But the provocative one, we did touch on, but it'd be worth looking at again because I think some of you may have not pondered the implications, and I want to follow up with some objections that I receive regarding this. Daniel 4, once you write that down, they're watching, they're protecting, they're administrating. Everything is under the ultimate decree and sovereignty of God, of course, we, we know that. We know that. But we saw in this passage a kind of administration, and by that I mean decision-making that has an effect on us, which will give you a newfound respect for angelic beings. But let's look at the text again. Daniel chapter 4. Let's start in verse 16. This is the, the dream, Nebuchadnezzar. He's a prideful man which they know and perceive not only from his look and his words, but from what he's thinking in his mind, which is how this all goes down when he says some things to himself. Even that, I mean, we'll use that when we talk about the, Dan, the uh, demon side of this whole thing. But he's having thoughts to himself as he walks around on the you know, veranda of his, of his, of his portico of his, of his royal palace. Angels perceive a lot more than what bounces off the skin and, and shirt that you're wearing tonight because that's not the realm of their perception. It goes much deeper than that. Let his mind be changed from a man, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let, it, let seven periods of time pass over him. This is the sentence, by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. We're talking about de- uh, angels here. To the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives to whom... Gives it to whom and he will and sets over it, even the lowliest of men, guys, you know, brute-knuckled guys like, like Nebuchadnezzar. So here is a decision made by angels, a decree by the watchers. Huh. Now drop down here. I guess we should start in verse 24. We'll work backwards. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. Whose decree is this? He's he's describing now the interpretation of the dream. 
Well, it's the decree of the watchers. It's the decree of the holy ones. It's the decree and decision of the angels. God says here, it's his decision. If that doesn't create a whole new conundrum, right? We already have that with human beings. Now you got that with angels too. God is decreeing things in his sovereignty and the decisions are being made by his agents and those agents are making decisions which affect other people. Oh, scandal. Yeah, works on the human side of things. It works on the angelic side of things. God oversees with a kind of sovereignty deciding things that really are the decisions owned by created beings, angels, that actually has an effect on, a consequence on human beings. Get used to that in the Bible. It's everywhere. Oh, and by the way, how dare they make decisions that affect my life? Well, it's in line with the decrees of God when they do. And flip it over. You do know that verse. We've quoted it a few times. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. Don't you know that we will judge angels? Oh, the tables will be turned one day. You and I will make decisions that will affect them. We will decide things in the mystery of God's providence and human decision-making that will actually affect the angelic beings when we get glorified in the next life. So it's going to work the other way, too, and it's going to crisscross, just like it crisscrosses between heaven and earth now, and it will be earth judging and administrating some decisions that have an effect on angelic beings. I thought they were elect. I thought they don't sin. I'm not saying that they're going to be adjudicating sinful actions. But we can have conflict as people, genuine, sincere, godly people, and have to settle some issues. And so it will be apparently in the, in the kingdom that we'll be doing this, making decisions. You mean angels get to make decisions about? Yes, that's what the, that's what the Bible teaches, all on the cascading decrees of God. There's mystery to that. There's mystery to that. Absolutely. End times. Let's talk about the end times just real quickly here. Angels have, play a big role in the book of Revelation. Let's just open up the book of Revelation and look at a few. The book of Revelation, let's start. Well, let's start before we get to Revelation, 1 Thess 4, because that really kicks off the book of Revelation, at least in my eschatological grid. They are going to announce the rapture. You know this text. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive left be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So apparently he doesn't come down, doesn't touch his feet on the ground, doesn't hit the Mount of Olives. We meet him in the air, and we get to go be with him forever. But it all starts with an announcement from an angel, an archangel, maybe another one playing a trumpet. Not sure how that works, but the angels are involved in our departure from planet Earth. Then the book of Revelation, I could have started earlier, and chapter 6, but chapter 15 makes such a clear statement of it. Chapter 15, verses 6 and 7 read this way, And out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, golden sashes around their chest. And of the four living creatures, one of the four living creatures gave to, them se gave to the seven angels bowls full of God's wrath, the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And they go and dispense the bowls of God's wrath. Obviously, that's throughout the book of Revelation. This is called the Great Tribulation chapter 6 through chapter 19, and there's a lot of bad stuff going on. But there's some good stuff going on, too. Look back to chapter 7. Chapter 7. There are 144,000 Jewish missionaries that are picked out, but look at how that passage starts. Verse 2. This is a lot of stuff to do at one time. And I always seem to rush here at the end, and I'm sorry about that. Revelation chapter 7, verse 2. I saw another angel 
ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, wait, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. And I heard the number of the ones that were sealed, 144,000 each from the tribes of the sons of Israel, and off they go. The angels are involved in calling them out, sealing. That's a word we use in Ephesians 1 relating to our relationship with God. And these Jewish folks are now called out for special service in the tribulational period in a great revival, if you will, or a, 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 a recoming, a, 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 a pulling to the Messiah during this period of time. And the angels are involved. They announce the rapture. They begin to dispense judgment throughout the tribulation. They then go and grab and protect and guard these 144 missionaries, at least for a time, sealing them. And then at the end, in Matthew 19, I mean, we're not trying to teach eschatology here, but just to show the angelic involvement, we could look at a lot of angelic dispensing of judgment because it's all throughout the book of Revelation. But then in chapter 19, when we get to the the actual coming of Christ to touch His feet on the ground, He comes back, it says in verse 14, with the armies of heaven. Now, everybody goes, well, wait a minute, that's the Christians. Now, you're right. Christians are involved in that. They're arrayed in fine linen. That's white and pure. Those were the ones following on the white horses. We know that includes us, but you might want to put next to this Matthew 25, verse 31, because in Matthew 25, 31, the description of Christ is when the Son of Man comes in His glory, which is happening here on a white horse, He comes with all of His angels with Him, and then He will sit on His glorious throne. So it's not the rapture. This is the return of Christ to earth. And he comes now, not just with the saints, with the Christians. He comes with his holy angels, which Jesus said repeatedly in his Olivet Discourse and throughout his teaching on earth. So the angels are a part of this throng, this host, this army. Chapter 20, right across the page, they're involved now in the binding of of Satan for a thousand years. Verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand, keys to the bottomless pit and a great chain, seized the dragon, ancient serpent, devil, Satan, a.k.a., and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit. You know, the he here is an angel throwing him, that is Satan, into a pit, shut it, sealed it. So he shuts it, he seals it, he grabs him, he chains him, he binds him, he puts him in this place so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended After that, he must be released for a little while. We don't think about that, but after this period of time, there's another bad detour. One more. Number six. This one's interesting. They're working. Such a bad word in people's minds, but it's such a good word in the Bible. They're working. They're ministering. Not that the word is used here, but there's obviously some kind of work involved, ministry involved. Look at verses 10 through 13 just to get some context. He carried me away in the spirit to a high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, like a crystal, clear as crystal. Look at verse 12 now. It had a, high, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, okay, got 12 gates to this city, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. East had three gates, north three gates, south three gates, west. So I've still got an interchange between angels and human beings in the new Jerusalem. This is the eternal state now. And I've got angelic beings there apparently doing something at the gates. 
posting, post, you know, posted guard there standing. I don't know, taking tickets to a tra- bus transfer. I'm not sure what they're doing, but they're doing something in the new Jerusalem for eternity. Your laughs are getting weaker as the night goes on. My jokes are getting badder, worse, badder. Yes, my grammar's getting badder. Or you're done. I know I'm done. So let's pray and I'll let you go. God, thanks for this time for us to skim through your word, to look at verses, to put our eyes on these texts and begin to try and assemble a clear, more biblical picture of what you've revealed to us about the angelic beings. Their destiny, a lot like ours, for the elect angels will be that they are serving you in eternity in a place that's without sin, without Satan, without any kind of corruption, and that'll be a good time. Elect angels with elect people, glorified forever, living in harmony and peace and good for all time. We look forward to that. In the meantime, God, we want to continue to give you thanks for the angels that watch over us. It almost sounds heretical to most evangelicals, but we don't think that way but we appreciate their watch over us, their guard and protection over us, uh, all in line with your decrees and your decision. And we're also very humbled by the fact that they make decisions that have an effect on us, all in keeping with your sovereign will, of course. But God, we want to have more respect and uh, never called, obviously, to worship them or appeal to them, but we certainly thank you for them. And pray next time as we get together next week and we learn a little bit more about their ministry and how we can even assemble in our minds what that might mean for the here and now, today, this week, tonight. Uh, Give us insight as we continue this study. Thanks for this team for bearing with me tonight. And I pray that you would just let this biblical material enhance their walk with you and enrich their spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.